0: So this morning, I am going to look at the account uh, in John. So we're going to start in the book of John, uh, chapter 12, verse 12. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. I'll have it on the screen as well. We have worship Bibles. But again, John 12, uh, 12 through 19, which starts, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to, to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Again, I really do believe in the Lord's perfect wisdom He placed this story in our Bible, so we would look at it. We would would read it, we would pay attention to it. And we all know the basic story, right? Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Uh, The crowds are just praising his name. Um, Thousands of people, I mean, they were welcoming their king. There's a little bit more to this story. Let's look at the context here. Jesus had just left a meal with Lazarus, Um, Mary and Martha, and with his disciples, they were walking towards Jerusalem. Now, the streets were crowded. The city was full. The uh, Jewish historian uh, Josephus estimated there, there could have been over two and a half million people in Jerusalem at that time for the Passover. Now, John doesn't tell us all the details leading up to uh, this, but we're told in the other gospel accounts that Jesus sent two disciples ahead of him um, to find the animal in which Jesus would ride into town with. He had told them to go to a certain place and, and that and there they would find it. He told them to loosen the animal and bring it to him. And of course, they acted in obedience and found it just as Jesus said. Love it when we allow God to make the plans, Right? They then took Jesus and set him upon the donkey and began to head towards Jerusalem. And as they came to the Mount of Olives, directly outside the gates of Jerusalem, the word spread that that this man who raised Lazarus from the dead was now entering into Jerusalem on a donkey. Of course, Jesus chose to ride on a donkey, which fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. And we'll take a look at that. Zechariah 9.9 says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Notice also, again, that Jesus was riding on a donkey just as the prophet had mentioned, had said. Now, one of the... um, customs of the ancient Mideast back then was that whenever a city was conquered, the victorious king would ride in the city ahead of his troops. And the animal he chose to ride on was very significant. For example, if he was seated upon a horse, it was a sign that the city would be put to sword, and the king was on his war horse as a sign of judgment against the conquered people. However, if the king chose to ride on a donkey, city could just breathe a sigh of relief. The king was coming in peace. The king was coming in peace. Let's face it. You can't really fight a battle on a donkey, at least not a successful battle. So the mention of a donkey in Zechariah fits the description of a king who'd come in righteousness, having salvation, rather than riding to conquer. The king came in peace. Matter of fact, look at uh, Zechariah, verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bell shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Note the many details here of symbolic peace in this verse, Right? Take away the chariots. The chariots were the main war vehicle at that time. Take away the horses, right? The horses pull the chariot. The horses were a main part of the war machine back then, right? The battle bow will be broken. No need for bows and arrows if you're coming in peace. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His message will be one of reconciliation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. This king will control extended territory with no enemies or concern. Verse 9 fulfilled this prophecy when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. And I believe, I believe verse 10 refers to a future time when Jesus, our Messiah, will reign after defeating the enemies at the second coming. Did you know, interestingly, um, I find this interesting at least, that the Apostle John was the only person to see both comings of the Messiah. Right? He was there when Jesus rode uh, into Jerusalem as Messiah. And God gave him a revelation on the island of Patmos uh, regarding the second coming uh, as as Messiah. Matter of fact, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, we read, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Interesting, I believe, um, the differences there between the first and second coming. The first time, Jesus comes on a donkey. Second time, he comes on a horse. First time, he comes in peace. The second time, he comes to judge. And to make war. First, first time as a sacrifice for sin. Second time to judge and rule the nations with a rod of iron. Folks, Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy of his first coming, and he will fulfill every prophecy of his second coming. Yes, this is the time for the amen. amen. Peace is coming. Again, back to our story. As Jesus was entering Jerusalem, the people began to praise him, and thousands upon thousands of people um, began to shout for him, just, just words of acclamation, praising him. What an incredible sight that must have been. Even the disciples had taken out their cloaks and laid the cloaks on the ground to make way for him. People there cut off palm branches, and they were waving the palm branches as Jesus was coming through the city. Jesus was actually getting the red carpet treatment. He was getting the red carpet treatment, and for the first time, or maybe for a short time, the people of Jerusalem focused all of their attention on the Lord. That would soon change. As As we just read, John tells us that the Pharisees were bothered by this, so they remarked, Behold, the world is gone after him. And Luke tells us that the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke his disciples, to which Jesus replied, and I love this, I love this, that that they didn't praise him, that the stones would rise up and praise him. Now, that would have been a sight. It was a time of great devotion and praise. But listen, I want you to see this. This crowd, right in the midst of their praise, began to diligently place their expectations upon Jesus. They began to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And Hosanna is often translated, please save us or please save us now. Now remember, Jerusalem at that time was under the rule of the Roman government. And they had been under that rule for a long time. They, even Herod called himself a king, and he was pretty much a puppet for Rome. It was Pontius Pilate, a Roman, who oversaw the affairs of, of Jerusalem at, at that time. Now listen, the Jews were and are a very proud people. It was a huge insult to have a heathen man from a heathen nation rule over their affairs. The Roman soldiers, they were brutally cruel. I mean, we know, look at the crucifixion. And they were cruel to the Jews. They despised the Jews. Jews despised them. Did you know that a Roman soldier at any time could stop a Jew on the street and make them carry their belongings? You know, the Jews really, really hated having the Romans rule over them. So in effect, what the crowd was really shouting when they shouted out Hosanna was, Jesus, save us now from the Romans. Save us from the Romans and I get that. Right, now, look, we have the whole Bible. We have the word of God. But I'm sure if I lived during that time, that's how I would feel. All right? Jesus, save us from, 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 from these people. All right? That crowd was very much like us today. Right, Lord, we want to praise you, but we want you to do things our way. That's just who we are. I hate to say that. It's, it's me. We praise God when we think he'll do things our way, but what happens when things do not go the way we plan them? I wonder how many folks would really have gone, come out if they knew the real reason that Jesus entered Jerusalem. Not to drive out the Romans, but to die on a cross. How many would have shouted out praise if they knew that he came to give himself over to die? I'm afraid there would only be a few, if any. For even the disciples thought that was the main reason that he came, to drive out the Romans. You know, for three years during Jesus' public ministry, he performed all types, all kinds of miracles, right? I mean, he, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. Gave sight to the blind. He turned water into wine. But, you know, after his entry into Jerusalem on that day, outside of, I think, cursing the fig tree and, and, and healing uh, the servant of the Most High when Peter cut his ear off, I'm not aware that Jesus healed anyone for that one week. I'm not aware that he performed any miracles that week. For someone who did miracle after miracle, I find that to be interesting, odd, maybe even significant. Now, this is just an opinion, but I believe Jesus is saying, You've seen what I can do by raising Lazarus from the dead and performing many, many miracles. But this week, I'm not here to be your miracle worker. I'm here to be your savior. I'm not here to do the things you want me to do. I'm here to do the things that need to be done. I believe that is what Jesus was saying. Let's face it. Some of them had saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave, and they thought someone with that type of power would do exactly what they wanted him to do. Again, we want to worship and serve God but only when he does what we want him to do. However, the greatest need wasn't deliverance from Rome. The greatest need was deliverance from sin. That's why he came. Think about this. What would it be like to live in a city free from the Romans, yet doomed to an eternity without God? Be careful what we pray for at times. Again, I find it interesting that so many from this crowd from Jerusalem in less than a week would cry out at the urging of religious leaders to crucify him. I'm not sure if they were true in their praise, but rather insincere. I don't believe for one moment that their whole heart was involved in praising Jesus. Again, look what Luke says in 1941. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Why did he weep? Why did Jesus weep? Maybe. Maybe because of their insincerity. I don't know. Maybe he realized that the cheering crowd was filled with people who were just caught up in the the excitement, but they were truly not recognizing him as Messiah. Again, we all know the story. At the end of the week, the cheers of the fickle crowd would turn to booze. Why? These people were looking for a liberator to make their lives better. Instead, Jesus invaded their religious comfort zones and upset them. Look, a few verses later, Luke tells us that Jesus scattered the tables of the crooked money changers. And over the next few days, he would say things that were um, neither popular nor politically correct. Some of the same ones shouting, crown him, are the same ones shouting, crucify him. They went from, hail him to nail him. I believe Jesus saw their superficial belief, and it broke his heart. It broke his heart. And while Jesus did not perform many miracles that last week, what he did do, he, he talked and preached strongly on commitment. This was the week that the rich, young ruler came to Jesus and Jesus told him, sell what you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And follow me. John twelve twenty six. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's not enough to praise Jesus as king. We must follow him as king. Folks, in all four gospels, Jesus' command to follow me appears repeatedly. Repeatedly. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? As David Blair said last week, this could be a serious a series topic. I could spend hours and hours talking about what does it mean to follow Jesus. But I'm just going to quickly talk, uh, touch on it. In my opinion, to truly follow Christ means he has to become everything to us. He has to be our Everything. Right Look, we all follow something, right? We do. Whether it's family, friends, sports, pop culture. God. We all follow something. And I'm not suggesting for one moment not to spend time with your family or friends. I'm not going there. We just cannot make those things our God. We can't make them our gods. God states we're to have no other gods before us. Exodus 23. But here's a verse that one day I think we really need to unpack. We don't have time, but here's here's the key verse of what it means Mark 12, 30. And you shall love the Lord your your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There's no such thing as a halfway disciple. There's no such thing as a halfway disciple. But look, as I stand up here and I, and I share this and state this, I know it's not easy. I get it. It's not easy. Even the disciples demonstrated that no one can follow Christ on his or her own willpower. I mean, look, the, the, the disciples had walked with Christ for three years, learning, observing, even participating in, in his miracles, Yet even they could not follow him faithfully in their own strength. And at times the disciples failed miserably. What hope do we have if the disciples couldn't do it? Well, you know what? They needed a helper. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. And you know what, folks? the Holy Spirit indwells every believer. Again, I think that's another subject we need to tackle more in this church the Holy Spirit. I hope we can do that in the very near future. Following Jesus means striving to be like Him. This has been up here for years to live and to love like Jesus and help others to do the same. To fully follow Christ means to make Him the boss of your life. To follow Christ means we apply the truths we learn from the word of God and to live as if Jesus is walking beside us in person. Humor me for a moment. Think about that. If Jesus truly was walking, if he would manifest himself and he's walking next to you, how would you act if Jesus is right next to you? What would you say? What would you think? What would you do? It would change your life. Yet Jesus is with us. Palm Sunday reminds us that the reign of Christ is far greater than any of the mind of man could ever conceive or plan. Listen, man looked for someone to fight their battles in the present world. Yet God had the ultimate plan of sending his son to fight the final battle over death. This is the greatness of why we celebrate this week, friends. Because of Christ's ultimate sacrifice, we can be set free from death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though die, yet shall live. My name is Dennis Fay. I am 64 years old, and I am a wretched sinner, and I do not deserve to spend eternity with the Lord. But by his grace and my faith and trusting in Jesus Christ, I will. I pray that I wouldn't cry during this period of time. But listen. i got to confess to you guys. At times, I take my salvation for granted. I do. I take my salvation for granted. And Dwight... I so enjoy Passion Week. You know, it, it, it refocuses me and, and to see what Christ did. Now, we've many of us have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, and it really did a great job of just focusing on the brutality of the Romans and what Christ went through physically, and even though that did not do it justice. But what I can't comprehend, I will never be able to comprehend, is Jesus took our sins, my sins, your sins, And I can tell you that I have sinned over thousands of times. How do you comprehend that? That Christ paid the price so that we can have life with him. Shame on me for taking my salvation for granted. Sorry. We have so much to be grateful for. We have so much to be grateful for, folks. The enemy, but look, the enemy knows this. And you can bet he is going to do everything he can and try to distract us from the true meaning of what this holy week or Passion week means. Please don't let him win. Let's choose to focus on worshiping our Lord, thanking him for the gift of his sacrifice, celebrating the power of the resurrection and the new life found in him alone. This is why I love this week. It's also why I love observing the bread and the cup. Because it reminds us of this. As elders, we are talking about observing the bread and cup more often. And I appreciate what we're going to do and we will do that. We need to do this more often. We need to remember and I can't think of a better way to lead into that than to partake of the bread and cup now. Hopefully, every one of you received the elements when you walked in. But if not, uh, Christy uh, and is in the back. Just raise your hand if you do not have uh, the elements, and she will um, come and, and give you. As she's doing that, I, I want to share a couple thoughts. And I, I've shared this with you before, but I just think it's 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 appropriate. Theoretical question. What makes a gift good or memorable? For openers, right? It definitely has to be thought through. This gift more than likely came at a high cost, either financially, time spent purchasing purchasing the gift, time spent looking for the gift. This gift has to meet a specific need or desire to have the intended impact, right? And every time we think about this gift, it should bring back the joy we felt, reminds us of the sacrifice the giver made for us. However, no gift, no gift can outmeasure the weight or the importance and sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross. When we celebrate communion, we remember the gift of salvation Jesus gave each one of us. As Jesus explains in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this meal was about to mark the start of a new covenant between God and his people. Again, as you know, looking at the Old Testament, before Jesus' death, generations of Jews sacrificed animals at the temple to pay for their sins. Thank God we don't have to do that anymore, because Jesus' sacrifice paid the penalty for sin once and for all, and that's why we need to and will celebrate communion today. When we take communion, folks, it symbolizes the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. The wine and the bread represents the blood and the body of Jesus that was poured out and broken as a sacrifice for our gift of salvation. And just like some gifts will always remind us of where we were when we received them, I hope and pray that the bread and cup will remind us of where we were when we first received Jesus. This is a time where we collectively reflect on this incredible covenant that binds us together. It's also a time to individually reflect on the incredible price Jesus paid for us to be in relationship with him. The Apostle Paul says that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. But a man must examine himself in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is a time that we need to examine our own hearts. Maybe there is some stuff you need to share or deal with the Lord. Maybe this is a time you need to um, examine or or re-examine your walk with the Lord. We're going to do that. I pray that you do it silently, but I also pray that you'll do it in any way. If you want to sit where you are, that's fine. If you want to stand, if you want to come to the altar, it doesn't matter if there's freedom here. But I want to take some time right now and examine ourselves. Can we do that? Let's do it.